You'll find it helpful to have that passage uh, open in front of you, uh, Revelation 17, as we go through. Let's pray as we start. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you that you are the Ancient of Days. And uh, Father, pray that we learn more of you this morning and more of your awesome power and might. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, for a sort of starter question this morning, my question is, what are Christians allowed to do in their behaviour now that they didn't used to be able to do in days gone by? What I mean is, in days gone by, Christians were sometimes looked down for by other Christians as worldly if they went to the cinema, or if they went to the pub, or if they owned the TV, or if they listened to pop music, or if you wore a t-shirt, not a shirt, on a Sunday, or women wore trousers. Some of you are looking confused, but I kid you not, uh, this is what was uh, around. Whereas nowadays, it seems that all those things are fine, I think. So, do we now live in a worldly church? Is worldliness listening to what everyone else listens to? Watching what everyone else watches? Going where everyone else goes? And these are questions that Christians have asked down through the ages, aren't they? They're relevant in John's day, with the culture that he had, and they're relevant in our day, in the culture that we have. How do we be in the world, but not part of the world? Well, what we have this morning in Revelation 17 is the beginning of a new section in Revelation. And really, it's a tale of two cities. That's what we're going to see as we go through. Two cities will be contrasted throughout the rest of the book. Two ones that you can choose to live in, if you like. One city is Babylon, and that's the one we meet here in Revelation 17. And the other one we'll meet in Revelation 21, the New Jerusalem. They're pictured as two cities in these chapters, but they're also pictured as two women. Babylon, as we'll see this week, pictured as a prostitute dressed in expensive attire. The New Jerusalem would be dressed as a bride adorned for her husband. <coughs> Babylon is destined for destruction, but the New Jerusalem will continue forever. And that is slowly what's being built up to as we begin this section, building up to the end of the book of Revelation. We're probably more familiar with the city that we're presented at, at the end, the New Jerusalem, Zion, the city of the Lord our God. We're sort of more used to that chapter being preached, aren't we? But we're less familiar, I think, with Babylon. And that's dangerous for the church as a whole. Because in chapter 18, next week, we're going to be told this. Hopefully. There we go. <clears throat> Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For our sins are heaped as high as the heavens, and God has remembered her iniquities. But if we're to come out of her, then we, know, we need to know who she is, don't we? If we don't know who she is, then we won't know how to come out of her. And if we get this wrong, we'll end up opposing or coming out of the wrong thing. For example, if we take this as society in general, as some Christians do, then we'll end up trying to avoid the world altogether, which again, some Christians do. If we take it just as first century Rome, as some Christians have, then it'll have little or no bearing on our life, because it's all sort of done and dusted with in Rome. 
If we take it as one empire or person, it may only be relevant to a group of people who are living near that time. So we need to approach this carefully. Who is Babylon? And what are they all about? And what does all this have to do with worldliness as Christians? And so our first point, the attraction of Babylon. Let me read to you verses 1 to 6 again. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hands a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name, a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Babylon here is pictured as an upper-class prostitute, clothed in jewellery, riding on the back of a scarlet beast. Now what's all that about? It sounds a bit random, it sounds a bit weird. Well, first of all, she's called Babylon. Babylon is not an accidental name. Babylon was one of the first cities mentioned in the Bible when it went by the name of Babel. Babel was the site of mankind's first coordinated rebellion against God. Mankind came together in opposition to God to build a tower, to make a name for themselves. And if we can get ahead a bit around what Babel was to start with, we can start to get ahead around uh, Babylon a bit better. Right from the start, Babel, Babylon, was man's attempt to go it alone without God. A new sort of man-made Eden without God, against God. They built it as a towering garden city. You may see remnants of the original idea in the hanging gardens of Babylon. That sort of idea of something that was huge and tall and covered in uh, and plants and flowers. It was one of the ancient wonders of the ancient world. But Babel, Babylon in that sense, was a twisted parody of Eden. A twisted parody of God's towering garden city that we're going to see in chapters 21 and 22. And Babylon is its continuation. The city continued on. And just as God's put a stop to Babel, God will put a stop to Babylon as well. Babylon, of course, went on to be a great city and a great empire. One which oppressed God's people and took them into exile. And this too is a thing that's picked up with the new Babylon. Babylon then is the society in opposition to God. It's the world seen as a system vehemently against its creator. It's not the empires and governments themselves, we're going to see their pictured as the beast, but Babylon rides on the back of them. She rides on the back of the beast. She's like a disease, and these godless empires are the carriers. And we see here that she's characterised by three things. So Sheffield was built on steel, Bradford was built on wool, San Francisco was built on rock and roll. But Babylon was built on three things. Three things that are money, sex, and power. 
money because she's adorned in expensive jewellery and attire. She's got all these pearls and jewels all over her. Sex because she is a prostitute full of sexual immorality. Power because she hires herself out to kings and has dominion over nations in verse 18. The sex part of it almost certainly has a religious aspect to it, as idolatry was often pictured as adultery in the Old Testament. And in practice, in the ancient world, those two things were linked together. But money, sex and power are the beating heart of Babylon. Enjoying seeing Christians killed for their faith, this woman is drunk on the blood of the saints. So Babylon is debauched, drunken, power-hungry, sex-saturated, money-mad culture. A culture that seduces nations and then laughs as she rides on the back of the beast. She is an anti-church, if you like. A rival culture that opposes the church, that seduces the world. The church was a community of people, and is a community of people, who turn from idols to serve the living God and call others to do the same. Babylon is a community of people who have turned from the living God to serve idols and call others to do the same. Whether those idols be physical or the money, sex and power that permeates Babylon. If we look at Babylon that way, the problem is not finding an empire or organisation that fits the bill. The problem is actually that all cultures, nearly all of them outside the church, work that way based on money, sex, and power. The big one in mind, the original readers, would have been the culture of Rome. Rome had that same mixture going on. And indeed, in the New Testament, it's referred to as Babylon. So 1 Peter, for example, uh, chapter 5, verse 13. Uh, she who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Almost certainly meaning there the church in Rome, rather than literally in Babylon. Rome was that divorced mixture of money, sex and power, drunk on the blood of the saints. Indeed, probably those ideas of excesses in our mind when we think of those things send us back to Rome and their infamous drunken parties. But the Greeks, were they any better? They did it before them. And the Persians did it before them. And so did the Babylonians. Babylon then is society at large in its opposition to God. Babylon is anti-God culture in all its forms. Babylon in that sense, sorry, she's riding on the back of the beast, I think I've got my mind's being so slightly. Um, she's riding on the back of the, the, the she's, I'm sorry, the Babylon in that sense is the, uh, the world, in the phrase, the world, the flesh and the devil, if you think about it that way. Or think about how Jesus, James and John talk about the world, we've got them there. I have have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Or James 4.4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or 1 John. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. In each of those verses, you could easily substitute the world for Babylon, and it would still make sense. To be worldly in that sense is to be Babylonian, if you like. 
And what are we to do in Babylon? We're to live as exiles, aren't we? Countercultural, not living as the world does and not living for what the world does. Another reason why Babylon is an appropriate name for this. Babylon is the godless culture that we live in. And the lesson that we're going to see this week and next week is not to go along with it. But the lure is to go along with the world. And it's strong. Even John here, when he sees the woman, stops and marvels at this. There's an appeal. Babylon is a seductress. And the tools of her trade are temptation and lies. Just as the devil used in the garden, think of it that way. Which is a reminder that she's just as much a servant of the devil as the beast is. The beast strikes Christians, but Babylon seduces them. The beast is all about power and persecution, Babylon about sin and seduction. And from experience in the West, in our context... Babylon takes down far more believers than the beast does. More professing believers are sucked into this system than leave the faith from persecution. Babylon lures them to live for money, sex and power. Think about the people that you've known over the years who have wandered away from the faith, whether slowly or dramatically. Aren't most of those stories ones of seduction by the world? That romantic relationship that they pursued, that dream job that they wanted, that more respectable standing of not believing those things. Or even just a desire to feel normal in the world. <coughs> it's the same as well with groups that go away still calling themselves Christians, cults and sects. How much of that, in the end, comes down to money, sex and power? It's only one of those three that those systems are built around. <coughs> And even within the church, we're not immune from worldly Babylonian influence. How many churches are ripped apart by power struggles? How many pastors are about to stand down because of misuse of money, misuse of power, or inappropriate sexual relations? Those three again. John wants us to recognise Babylon in all her guises and have nothing to do with her. In the West, it's not the beast. It's Babylon that threatens us more at the moment. That's not to say the beast isn't biting, though. The world does attack in other ways, and we need to be aware of both. So point two, the attack of the beast. Have a look at verse seven onwards. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast, because it was, and is not, and is to come. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is... And the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he will only remain a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an, an eighth, but it does belong to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. 
They are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. This beast we've already met back in chapter 13. The details are almost exactly the same here, only now we're told that the beast is red, like the dragon. In chapter 13, we defined it as the empires and nations of the world. The political powers and authorities in opposition to God. We did so in part because the beast features pick up on the four beasts in Daniel 7. There, the, the, here the beast is a sort of mashup of all four of those. And in Daniel 7, we're told uh, these uh, four great beasts are four kings or kingdoms who shall arise out of the earth. Kings and kingdoms are used interchangeably in this passage in Daniel and I think in Revelation as well. Those kingdoms back in Daniel were the Babylonian Empire, the Mede and Persian Empire, the Greeks, and then lastly Rome. Four empires that oppressed God's people. And the language here of the beast is similar. Unlike Babylon was portrayed as a sort of parody, a sort of mid-take of the church... So here, the satanic beast is like a parody of God. God says in Revelation 1, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and is and, sorry, who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. The beast here, did you notice, is like that. He was, but is not, and is about to rise to destruction. It's like he's trying to be God, but can't quite manage it, and in the end gets destroyed. The reference to being not, but to come, is probably back to, again, to chapter 13, the beast that was mortally wounded, yet was healed. Those might be references to the way that empires are struck down, but seem to reappear in another form, like a mock resurrection. You know, knock down Rome, up pops the Huns. Knock down the Huns, up pop the Caliphates. Knock down the Caliphates, up pop the Mughals. There's already always somebody playing that role and so on and so on through history. The beast looks beaten, but every time it sort of bounces back in a new form. And the people will marvel at it. All it says who don't have their name written in the book of life. In other words, everyone who's not a believer in Christ. But it's like this is inevitable, it keeps coming back and back, and back. And that's what we see in the description in verses 9 to 13. A total of 18 kings are mentioned here, and people have looked down through history, I've had a look at some of them this week, and found historical possibilities for the kings and the kingdoms. As we said, the two are sort of used interchangeably. The problem is, of course, if we take Daniel 7 and Daniel 2 as our base, there are actually only four kingdoms mentioned in Daniel 7, and in Daniel 2. Some see a reference to a separate kingdom with the ten toes on the statue, but that still only takes us to five. And according to verse 10, we're already at number six. So either that's either in John's day or at the end, however you want to take it. But it doesn't quite work, does it, with the system that you've got in Daniel 7. Better to take it then, as we have done through the whole book of Revelation, that seven has to do with completeness and wholeness. Here they're called seven hills, which could be a reference to Rome, built on seven hills. But as we noted when we looked at the beast last time, so is Jerusalem. That's built on seven hills. So is Washington, D.C., 
Moscow, Brussels, Tehran, Mecca, and Morley. Uh, so I went to high school. You go to Seven Hills High School. Uh, just to back up that. I just don't know. But better then to see it referring to, to seven uh, empires, if you like. Just the whole of all empires. Babylon, uh, sorry, the Babylonian Empire, for example, is called the Destroying Mountain in Jeremiah 51. We'll pick up on that next week. There are seven empires representing empires across history. In John's day, he was already very close to the end. The last one will come, but they'll only remain a little while. We're only a little while from the end, which again we read in the rest of the book. And the beast itself is not one of the seven. It sits alongside the others as an eighth. One commentator puts it, commentator puts it this way. The beast is the essence, the concentrated expression of the seven, the embodiment of their spirit. In a way, the beast represents the whole lot. If this were Daniel 2, it would be the whole statue of empires. And when their feet are struck by the rock, which is Christ's kingdom, which itself becomes a mountain, it's not just the feet that are destroyed, it's the whole statue. The poor beast comes down. It's not just one empire that will be destroyed, not even seven, but the whole kit and caboodle will be ended by Christ. We will have victory over the beast. What about the ten horns then that receive authority as kings for an hour? Well again, the number ten, we meet again and again in Revelation. There are a few numbers that we meet all the time, there are some numbers that we meet not at all, but we meet ten a lot of the, t- uh, a lot of the time. And it just means a lot. Although the time is short, there are going to be plenty of kings and probably kingdoms to go with it. But all of them will be comparatively short-lived. That's what it's sort of showing you with the hour. So if you go back in history, if you look back to the Egyptians, for example, their empire endured nearly 2,000 years. The Roman Empire lasted nearly 500 years. The French Empire, no no insult to the French, lasted 10 years. The first French Empire... And Adolf Hitler, for all this talk of, you know, millennium uh, Reich, a millennium, thousand-year Reich, he actually only managed to keep it going for six years. The beast spokesman will keep changing throughout history. Its face will keep changing, but its character will remain the same. They look in control, they look like they're the ones in power, but really the authority lies with the beast. It's just the beast with another face. And they make war on the Lamb, on Christ and his saints. They persecute the church. You see, through history, Babylon tempts, but the beast terrorises. And in many parts of the world, the danger is not so much from Babylon, but from the beast. The beast is starting to raise its head in the UK too. We had some shocking stories shared in the church WhatsApp group this week. Christians arrested for praying silently in their heads. Street preachers being added to the prevent watch list. At the moment, there are protections for Christians in law in the UK, but Babylon is riding on the back of the beast. And it won't be too long before the beast does Babylon's bidding. But there is hope for us. And so our last point. The end of Babylon. Let's have a look at verses 14 to 18. Actually, just verse 14 to start with. They will make war on the Lamb, 
and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. The beast and his followers make war on the Lamb, and presumably his followers. But in a twist of events, the Lamb conquers them. The terrifying beast with its seven heads and its ten horns is no match for the Lamb. A lamb looking as though it's been slain, if you read the rest of Revelation. This lamb, weak in appearance, we're told, is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. No mere king is a match to the lamb. And do you notice as well, his followers are no mere lackeys. They are called, chosen, faithful. That's us that he's talking about there. We are the followers of the lamb. And that means our future is secure. Think about the description we're given there. We're called. Called by God. God has called us by name. We are his. So John 10, 3. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls them. His, calls his own sheep by name. And leads them out. We're called. Not only that, we're chosen. God chose us before the foundation of the world. And he chose us out of the world. So John 15. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore the world hates you. That's what we've been reading, isn't it? The world may hate us. The beast may attack us. Babylon despises us. But God has chosen us. And finally, we're faithful. In Revelation, uh, faithfulness has to do with perseverance through persecution. It's as though we've been tested and found faithful. And the other two things are things that are done by God. God calls, God chooses. I wonder whether there's a hint here that God will keep us faithful. Whether there is or not, these things speak about our secure identity in Christ. Despite the difficulty of the battle, we are secure. And the outcome is secure. And that means an end to the beast. More details to follow later in the book. But also an end to Babylon. But even before the final end comes, there is strife between the beast and Babylon. Babylon leaves the beast desolate and naked. Look at verse 16. And the ten horns you saw, they and the beast, will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, and devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. For all her vaunted wealth and luxury, Babylon ends up with nothing, shamed in the street like a common prostitute. And then worse, is devoured by the beast. And what we see with her end is a sort of mashup between the ending of unfaithful Israel in Ezekiel 16 and Jeremiah 2 to 4. There, Israel are pictured as a prostitute that ends up stripped and naked and shamed by those around her. Unlike promiscuous Israel, there it's her lovers who turn on her and seek to kill her. It's her lovers who invade and destroy her. The whole beast Babylon partnership has within itself the seeds of its own destruction. The pervasive violence and moral decadency means that they are bound for mutual strife and eventual destruction. 
So many times through history, a strong nation or culture has moved towards moral decadency. That sort of culture holds sway over its kings and leaders. But then the nation's only to be swallowed whole by the next big empire on the scene. And then the empire, of course, repeats the pattern and the whole cycle starts again. The beast destroys one version of Babylon, only to spawn another. And Babylon's fate here matches that of promiscuous Israel and Judah who went astray. But it also matches the fate of idolatrous, idolatrous Queen Jezebel, who was in the end devoured by beastly dogs. She, of course, again matches the character of Babylon, luring people into sin and idolatry. And of course, there's already been a Jezebel in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2, it was the letter to the churches in Thyatira, where there was one who was called a prophetess, who was leading the church into sexual immorality and causing them to stumble by eating food sacrificed to the world's idols. She was called Jezebel. And of course, that's what Babylon does, leading the world astray, even seeming to hold sway over visible elements of the church. Through Jezebels of both genders, the church is led astray into false teaching and immorality. The church's job, though, is to resist that, to stand firm against the tide, not to go the way of the world. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we'll go to entirely different places, does it? Or watch entirely different things, wear completely different clothes, or listen to completely different music. But it should make a difference in all those areas, shouldn't it? What we watch at the cinema, how much we drink at the pub, how much time we spend watching TV, what lyrics we make stick in our heads through our playlists. As Paul writes to the Galatians, to freedom you were called, brothers, and they do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, but serve one another in love. Worldliness can show itself like that, can't it, as we follow Babylon? But worldliness is more subtle than just the films we watch or the music we listen to or the clothes we wear. Babylon's tendrils go deeper, don't they? It's quite possible to be as straight-laced as a stately Victorian and still be worldly. Because Babylon's tendrils go into our heart. Why do we do what we do? Worldliness is just as much living for what the world lives for as it is doing what the world does. I know plenty of Christians through the year have renounced worldly pursuits in pursuit of worldly goals. Like the holy preacher on TV who preaches the Bible but then spends as much time asking for donations to their personal ministry. Money. Like the Christian student who's never at nightclubs because they want to be admired by the opposite sex at the Christian Union. Sex. Like the Christian who volunteers to run an important event at church because nobody recognises them in their job power. Even if we're playing by Christian rules, if it's still the world's game, then it's worldliness. It's still Babylon at work. It's still money, sex and power, just in a more sanitised, palatable form. But friends, as we'll see next week, we must flee Babylon. Babylon is doomed. Instead, we must live for the city that will last the new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven, Zion, the holy city, the city of our God. We must live as citizens of Zion, even in the midst of Babylon. 
We must live as exiles in the community that we live in. Not because we're allowed to or not allowed to by what other Christians think, but because we want to. Because we want to please our God and we are citizens of Zion, the new Jerusalem. So flee Babylon, endure the beast, and live for Jesus for that glorious future that is ours. Let's pray. Father God, we confess so often we don't know our hearts very well. Father, help us this week to look into our hearts and see what it is that we're living for. Father, help us not to become part of the world as the rest of the world is. Help us to flee Babylon and not take part in her sins. Father, give us the strength that we need to do that. Help us support one another as we do that. And Father, may we live for that city that is to come. And Father, give us hope as we live for that. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.